Good morning, and welcome to the last chapel of our semester. It's hard to believe that it's here, and I know you're both excited and under a little bit of stress and pressure, and I'm uh, grateful to have the opportunity to encourage you before you get away. I, I do know, too, that some, for some of you, this is not only the last chapel of the semester, it's the last chapel of your uh, university career. Some of you are graduating, and if you're graduating, uh, would you just stand wherever you are and let us say congratulations, excited for you. Yeah, we're going to miss you, and can't believe it's here already. We're going to miss you, and we kind of hope you'll miss us. You'll come back to visit. All right, take your Bible and join me in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 2. Matthew, chapter 2. It was our goal this week, beginning with Joe on Monday and Adam on Wednesday, and now my words to you on Friday, to really prepare you Uh, We want you to finish well, but we also want you to prepare well. We really have in our heart that this could be and should be, and we want it to be the best Christmas season you've ever had. Joe spoke about your identity and living out of your identity in Christ. No matter who you are, where you're from, your social status, your ethnicity, You're a new creation, you're united in one family, you're born from above, you possess the spirit of the living God. We wanted to encourage you to live out of that so that during this holiday season, you live out of the wealth and wonder of who you are, that when you go home, people will see the beauty and the wonder and the glory in a divisive and challenged society. They'll see in you the glory and the life that is Christ. And Adam on Wednesday reminded you of the world's greatest Christmas song. Not your identity, but his. The identity of our Lord and Savior, the one who is worthy of glory, the one who brought peace, the one who was the full expression of God's love, the pleasure that he has in his creation whom he would redeem, his worth, our worship, high praise, preparing you to say, hey, whatever you do this holiday season, make sure you worship well. He's worthy of that worship. And today in Matthew chapter 2, I want to call you to celebrate well by giving perfect gifts. By giving gifts that God, our Savior, Jesus Christ, deserves and desires. This morning is about celebrating Christmas, the best you can celebrate it, by giving Christ what he deserves and desires. And guidance to that goal is found in the expressions of these three magi, or perhaps more, or three gifts given, but there may have been more magi coming from the east, but they give clarity as to what would be appropriate for someone whom we worship this holiday season. The celebration of Christmas 
did not always involve giving gifts. After these original gift givers, the early church, as I shared with my Bible study last night, did not celebrate Christmas. They didn't celebrate the advent of Jesus Christ. A matter of fact, a historian from the University of Texas in her book called Christmas in America said that for most Christians, the earliest Christians, simply weren't interested in celebrating nativity. They expected the second coming any day. And to them, the celebration of Christ's birth was in some sense worthless, she writes. Third century church father Origen had actually, as it would be in the 200s, declared it a sin to even think of keeping Christ's birthday as though you were celebrating some pharaoh king. As a matter of fact, it wasn't until 354 AD in the Philokalelian calendar of the Roman government, a document of Rome, you remember Constantine made Christianity the religion of the world, the Roman Empire, and that calendar in 354 AD lists December 25 as the day of Jesus' birth in Bethlehem of Judea. Not sure exactly how they arrived at that date since we do not know when Christ was born. What we do know that that season was chosen because it was a festive season to the God of the sun, Saturnalia, and uh, it was defined in 274 AD by a decree of the emperor that this solstice season, this celebration and feast to the God of the sun would be the Nautilus Solus Invicti, the birth of the invincible sun. And some think that uh, Constantine, the Christian emperor, and the early church took advantage of this pagan celebration to invoke the rich biblical symbolism that described Jesus as the son of righteousness and God's true light. And so the worship of the son, the true son, could certainly fit in that season of the worship of a pagan god, Mithras. Gregory of Nazareth, 4th century theologian and Bishop of Constantinople cautioned against feasting to excess, dancing and crowning the doors, and urged that the celebration of the Nativity, December 25, after a heavenly and not after an earthly manner. What you need to understand is not only was Christian Christmas not initially celebrated at all, didn't come into being really until 354, and when it did, it took on the character of pagan festivals to the God of the Sun. And though Christians would not obviously worship the God of the Sun, they would worship the Son of God and His advent, but they would worship, or they would celebrate rather, in the way that had always been pursued, and that was through dancing, feasting, and excess. And what St. Gregory was arguing for is, hey, don't worship like pagans, feasting and raunchous display, but rather do so in a heavenly manner, not an earthly manner. And for the next thousand years, Christmas observances expanded all over Europe with the growth of the church, 
When it got to Sweden, it became a part of the midwinter feast festival known as Yule, the Scandinavian festival known as Yule. But it was always celebrated, devoted to many pagan pleasures, discouraged the remainder of the year, gluttony, feast, raunchous public revelry. Clergy in the early 1700s began to respond accordingly, and in 1725, an Anglican minister, Henry Bourne, said that the way most people behaved at Christmas was a scandal to religion and an encouragement of wickedness, a pretense for drunkenness, rioting, and wantonness. So one, it didn't start out as a celebration. When it did, for nearly 1,500 years, it was characterized by behavior that wasn't at all consistent with Christianity or moral integrity or holiness of heart. As a matter of fact, in the 1600s, 1644, the Puritans outlawed Christmas. There was a law passed in England that made Christmas Day an official working day. And you could not, under penalty of law, literally... It was illegal to cook plum pudding or mince pie for the holiday. Puritans said Christmas was nothing but a pagan festival covered with a Christian veneer. There was no gift giving, there was only partying. When Christmas came to America America in the colonial season in Virginia and in other colonial states and colonies, they continued the celebration by hunting, dancing, feasting, and poor city dwellers, history tells us, partied and thronged in the streets in boisterous demonstrations, begging for food, drinking in the homes, pressing the well-to-do to bless them with things that they didn't have. In the cities, in the cities of the early colonies, especially in New York, Philadelphia, that kind of celebration or expression of Christmas took on kind of a dark side. In England, there was kind of a benign practice of what was called wassailing. It's a term used in some of our Christmas songs or one of our Christmas carols. Wassail was a drink, mulled, Um, ale, roasted apples, eggs, cloves, ginger, nutmeg, sugar, sometimes called lamb wool because of the pulp of roasted apples that came frothy to the top. They would be put in big vats and the party would be celebrated and supported by wassail, the drinking of this beverage. But wassailing took on kind of a dark side in the cities of the colonies during the Christmas celebration. Bands of young men would march into houses of the wealthy who were, and they were expected by these bands of young men to offer gifts of food and drink and other desirable things in exchange for a song or some action of goodwill. There was an explicit threat. Either you give from what we give, our singing or our kindness, or we take at your expense. As a matter of fact, one surviving wassail song goes like this. We come here to claim our right 
And if you don't open up your door, we will lay you flat upon the floor. Christmas exchanges at that time, and really the first Christmas gift-giving, was really the master giving to the servant, the patron to the apprentice, the wealthy to the threatening poor. It was a time when the social order was kind of upside down. Instead of the lesser working for the greater, the greater was forced to give to the lesser. And the whole idea of quiet family celebrations, gift exchanges among family members, the kind of Christmas gift-giving we know didn't even exist until early into the 1800s. Matter of fact, so out of control was the Christmas celebration and this growing threat in the cities that in 1828, the first professional police force in New York City was formed as a consequence to violent Christmas celebrations. In 1823, something changed. Some patricians in Upper Crust in New York City tried to develop a new tradition. And one of them, Samuel Clark, or rather Clement Clark Moore, authored a poem called A Visit from St. Nicholas. You will know it as "'Twas the night before Christmas." You will know it from the favorite words when all through the house not a creature was stirring, not even a mouse. The stockings were hung by the chimney with care in hopes that St. Nicholas soon would be there. The children were nestled all snug in their beds while visions of sugar plums danced in their heads. Remember that? "'Twas the night before Christmas." Remember, there's noise in the lawn. The father figure wakes up, he opens the windows, there's this jolly fellow in the yard and the sleigh and eight reindeer on Donner, on Blitzen, on Comet, or as I said, now Dasher, now Dancer, now Prancer, now Vixen, on Comet, on Cumet, on Donder and Blitzen. You remember that? Well, hey, that's the foundation for the Christmas you and I know. When that poem was written, it not only became famous, it was editorialized by the major papers of the day, and giving gifts to children, stockings on the mantle, stuffed with gifts given by this kind, jolly soul dressed as a plebeian, bringing kindness and laughter and cheer to children, giving gifts to children and loved ones supplanted the wassail as the mainstay of holiday celebration and retailers all over the country began to recognize the high potential of gift giving, not wassailing. And so in a booming industrialized economy, Christmas was taken from the streets into the home. Gift giving became the norm Retail bonanza, merchants began to blossom and boom. As a matter of fact, one historian says in the 1870s, department stores often outdid churches in religious adornment and symbolism with pipe organs and choirs, statues of saints and angels. And they bathed it all with the consumption and reflected glory of Christianity, end quote. Princeton University historian Eric Schmidt says Christmas in the late 1800s was a grand festival of consumption. And quickly, 
overt expressions of religious connection became less and less in terms of the motifs. Department stores became strikingly other places. 1940s, Chicago's Marshall Field Department store had a glittering fairy land of starlit, snow-covered, themed decorations that expanded into Gimbel's in the 1920s in Philadelphia, Gimbel's department store, Macy's in New York City, Hudson's in Detroit. Christmas became consumerized. It went from not at all, partying, gift-getting, now to gift-giving and gift-selling. As a matter of fact, in 1939, the department stores petitioned Congress to designate the fourth Thursday of November as Thanksgiving, because sometimes it would fall at the end of November, to guarantee four weeks of retail sales prior to Christmas. And in 1941, Congress determined that there would always be four weeks before Christmas to support the celebration of Christmas the selling of gifts, the giving of gifts. Franklin Roosevelt determined and decreed with Congress that Christmas would be recognized not only as a holiday and a festival season, but a consumer-rich economic force of the highest levels. Gift-giving, gift-selling, gift-taking, gift-getting, Christmas in our culture wouldn't even exist, they say. Culturally, it's celebrated by 96% of Americans. It's celebrated by 87% of people that don't even believe anything about the Christmas story you just heard read. The holiday phenomena that is Christmas exists in part today, history says, because of the economic power of the selling of things and the giving of gifts. Now that should probably be no news to you except some of the history that you would not know. What I want to argue for today is not the getting of gifts, not the giving of gifts but the giving to the one who is worthy of the greatest of your gifts. I want you to have the best Christmas ever, not because of what you get from them, not what you give to them, but rather what you give to him. And guidance for that is in chapter 2, the Gospel of Matthew. So let's read together these verses and then... I'll give you some highlights about perfect gifts because there's nothing better than giving a perfect gift. And there's nothing worse than giving the wrong gift. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, Matthew chapter 2 of Judea, in the days of Herod the king, behold, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. And when Herod the king heard it, he was troubled and all Jerusalem with him. 
And gathering together all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he began to inquire of them where the Christ was to be born, the anointed one, the Messiah. And they said to him, in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it has been written by the prophet. And here's that statement from Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And you, Bethlehem, land of Judah, by no means least among the leaders of Judah, for out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. And Herod secretly called the Magi and ascertained from them the time the star appeared. And he sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and make careful search for the child, and when you have found him, report to me that I too may come and worship him. And having heard the king, they went their way, and lo, the star which they had seen in the east went on before them until it came and stood over where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceeding with great joy. And they came into the house and saw the child with Mary, his mother, and they fell down and they worshipped him. And opening their treasures, they presented to him gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And having been warned by God in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed for their own country by another way. Perfect gifts. Gifts suitable to celebrate the person about which whom we sang today, the scripture was read today, the centerpiece of Christmas, Jesus Christ, God, Emmanuel, God with us. Perfect gifts. There's nothing better than giving a perfect gift, and there's nothing worse than giving the wrong gift. When I first got married, and I don't know how you are, but giving a gift to your mother is a tough gift. Trying to figure out what she needs and what she would want. And we were struggling. I was struggling. It was my mother and trying to determine what she needed. And I hated this, but this was the norm. I'd walk around the mall in which I worked at the sporting goods store trying to identify something that would trigger to say, hey, mom needs that. Well, I found the gift for her. I found a parakeet in the pet store, a peed that was blue and white and beautifully colored. I bought the whole package. Mom needs a bird. <laughs> you can see I was desperate. I brought the bird home, transported the bird from Virginia to New Jersey where my mother and father were living. My family, my wife and I went north. I hid the bird until Christmas Day. After the gift giving around the tree, I said, Mom, your son has something for you. I was excited. I went all out. I bought the cage and all the cool stuff inside. This was a beautiful bird. My mother went into the room. The door was open. The lights were turned on. The bird was presented. My mother ran out of the house, <laughs> squealing, not happy, terrified. I looked at my sister, who was also home from North Carolina, and I said, Joy, what just happened? She said, Harry, don't you know your mother hates birds? I didn't know that, but my sister reminded me that my father would bring birds in sometimes. He would find in a nest, terrify and terrorize my mother, and she had no affinity for birds. 
You know what? There's nothing worse than giving a bad gift. And there's nothing better than giving a perfect gift. I want you to give God a perfect gift. I want you to give Jesus Christ gifts he deserves and desires. Now the Magi, plural, came from the east. They were probably descendants of the magicians and the dream interpreters that Daniel, you met in Babylon, and Cyrus, the Medo-Persian empire, Darius, the leader of the kingdoms of the east. There were magicians, magi, also known as magistrates because they were kingmakers. They were the king counselors. They were the dream interpreters. They were the kingmakers from the east. They saw a star arise. Probably not an astronomical star because they saw it arise and they went west and stars don't rise in the west and they came from Jerusalem to the south, Bethlehem, when the star came over top of the home in which the child was and stars don't go south, stars don't rise and move west. It's probably not an astronomical star, it's probably a supernatural light, maybe like the pillar of fire in the Old Testament, where God in response to the seeking of these magi, probably influenced by Daniel, probably influenced by the Daniel chapter 9 interpretation and dream that Daniel had describing this one who would come, Messiah, the anointed one, the king of everything. They would probably be familiar with Old Testament promises and one of their forerunners in Numbers chapter 24, and you remember him known as Balaam, who was paid to prophesy against Israel, but he couldn't. He was a representative of the Edomites, which is interesting because Herod was half Edomite and half Jew. Herod was not Jewish by birth because of the lack of purity in terms of his pedigree. He chose to be Jewish, and he had taken on the title King of the Jews. It was given to him by the Roman Senate, but he knew he wasn't legit. He wasn't legit by pedigree, and he didn't have that title. He built that big temple known as Herod's Temple. He wanted to be King of the Jews. He was politically labeled King of the Jews, but he wasn't biblically qualified to be the king of the Jews. And the magi who are coming from the east, perhaps having seen a vision, they saw a vision in order to avoid Herod's pursuit of this child. So clearly they were the recipients of dreams and being the interpreter of dreams, it's not hard to imagine that God spoke to them in a dream, drawing them east or west rather from the east. And perhaps this Balaam prophecy was in their mind as communicated to them by Daniel and the influence of the Jews who remained behind after being exiled. Listen to these words and imagine you're one of those students of prophecy and having been taught the anticipation of a star which would come forth. Listen to these words, words Balaam's prophecy. The oracle of Balaam who hears the words of God Numbers 24, knows the knowledge of the Most High, who sees the vision of the Almighty, falling down yet having his eyes uncovered. Listen to this, verse 17, Numbers 24, I see him, but not now. 
I behold him, but not near. A star shall come forth from Jacob, and a scepter, a symbol of rule, shall rise from Israel, shall crush through the forehead of Moab and tear down the sons of Sheth. Scepter, that would reference Genesis 49.10 when Jacob prophesied, a scepter shall not depart from Judah nor the ruler's staff from between his feet until Shiloh comes, a reference to Messiah, Christ, and to him shall be the obedience of all the peoples. Perhaps they, in the reading of Old Testament prophecy as provided them by the Jewish community residing in the East, the leadership of Daniel, the influence of others, became aware of this anticipated star that would arise, this one who would rule, this one who would have a scepter, this one who would be the king of the Jews. And as a matter of fact, this one who would not only be the ruler of the Jews, he would be the ruler of all nations. All peoples would give obedience to him. Don't know what they saw. No, no, we know they saw something and they traveled east to west looking for him. This is not the manger, this is not the cave where, or the cutaway area where Jesus was initially laid. This would have been in a home, and we know that because of the time that it was taken from the time the star originally appeared at the birth of Jesus, and the time it would take those magi to transition to Jerusalem where they're now meeting up with Herod. This is a child who is probably a bit older than a newborn, probably in a home in Bethlehem, and they're looking for him. And they don't know where to look because Micah's prophecy, which tells them, wasn't a part of what they'd received. It came later, after Daniel. So they're looking, and they come to Herod, and Herod does what Herod does. He reacts with paranoia. After learning, it says he's troubled. Matthew chapter 2, verse 3, Herod the king when he heard it, he was troubled. Why? Because he's illegitimate. He knows he's threatened. He was insanely or crazy as it relates to suspicion. I don't know if you know this, but he was called a murderous old man. He murdered his own wife and mother because they threatened his rule. He murdered his oldest son. He murdered two other sons, all assassinated by him. And such was his reputation that Augustus, said it was better to be Herod's pig than to be Herod's son. Which is a play on words because the word pig is hus and this word for son in the Greek is huies. H-I-U-S versus H-U-S. Better to be his pig than his son. He was jealous. He was not just troubled. He was paranoid. He was determined to remove the threat and he was going to use the Magi to accomplish that and when he couldn't, he killed all children up to two years old in Bethlehem in order to secure the fact that he would have no rival. And he did that according, according to verse 16, according to the time he ascertained from the Magi. So you've got these men, these kingmakers coming from the east, influenced by prophecy. You've got these men who are influenced by a dream and, and by a star and by the leadership of God to come and worship not just the king of the Jews, but the king of kings. And they offer three gifts. 
I'm going to argue that this is the best way to celebrate the King of Kings by giving him gifts that represent not only who he is, but what he deserves. Let me give you three quick things to think about as you celebrate Christmas. And not the gifts you will get from them, not the gifts you will receive from them, but the gifts you will give to him. Number one, gold, which is the gift of a king. Number one, gold, which is a gift of the king. It speaks to the sovereignty of this child, the royalty of this child. Matter of fact, turn over to Psalm 72, and let me just show you a little messianic statement about this child and his kingly rule, gold. Gold says, I get that you're a king. Gold says, I get that you rule. Gold says, you're deserving of the best because you are the best because you're the highest. Gold says, you're worthy of the most valuable and best that I have. Gold says you're a king and you're worthy of my submission and my obedience. Psalm 72, verse 8, referring to a righteous, the righteous king, may he also rule from sea to sea, from the river to the ends of the earth. Let the nomads of the desert bow before him. So how big is the rule of the righteous king of God? From end to end, from sea to sea, the extent of it is unlimited. And the nomads of the desert are to bow before him, and his enemies are to lick the dust as a symbol of humility and defeat. Let the kings of Tarshish and all the islands bring presents. The kings of Sheba and Seba offer gifts, and let all kings bow down before him, and all nations serve him. The gold says he's sovereign, worthy of gifts, worthy of gold, worthy of submission. Verse 15, so may he live and may the gold of Sheba be given to him. The gift of gold is a perfect gift for a king. And the gift of gold is a symbol that says, you're the highest of all, you're the best of all, and you are worthy of my all. Master's University student, gold is the king of metals. And it is fit for a king. And when you give a gift that's perfect for the king of everything, you give a gift that says, I recognize who you are and I submit to that. I give you the best that I have, the symbol of my best. And I give you my submission, my allegiance, and my honor. I will respect you, I will bow down to you, I will give you the best that I have, the greatest gift you can give Jesus Christ this Christmas is the best that you have, time, best time, best treasure, the best of your talents, first and foremost, offer it to him and submit it all to him. The gift of gold says, I get who you are. I submit to you who you are, and I give you the best that I have. This is the most valuable gift that God desires and deserves. Frankincense. This is the gift of a priest. This not only recognizes the deity of Jesus Christ, because God received incense as a worship expression. Incense was the sweet perfume used in temple worship, frankincense. 
When sacrifices were offered, frankincense was sprinkled on those sacrifices. And the Bible says that when those sacrifices were consumed by fire, the frankincense, the sweet perfume, the most valuable perfume of all, not to be used for any other purpose but for the worship of God, would ascend as a soothing aroma to God. It was a place where worship took place, where communion took place, where the priest ministered. It was not only received by God, it was used by the priests so that people could worship God and commune with God and relate to God. Frankincense comes from a French word, frank, which means open and honest. Let me be frank with you. That says I'm going to be honest. I'm going to tell it the way it is. I'm going to be free to say to you exactly what I want to say and exactly what I want you to hear. Incense means to burn. This is an open expression before you as my God by way of a priest where I can be open with you and it's why it's used in Revelation chapter 4 as incense, frankincense, bowls of incense, frankincense, burning before the throne of God ascending. That's the prayers of the saints. Listen to this. Frankincense says you're not just a king. You're a priest who enables me to have communion with God. You've made a way for me. The best gift you can give God is your honor, submission, and allegiance. And the most pleasing gift you can give God is to take advantage of the relationship he's provided for you to be open with God, to commune with God, to be with God, to spend time with God. You have one mediator, that's Jesus Christ, who has provided a way between God and man so you can have relationship. Do you know what God desires from you? Communion with you. The prayers of the saints are like the perfume of God. Time with God in prayer. Time with God that says, you matter to me and I want relationship with you as a pleasing perfume to heaven. It's a perfect gift. He gave his perfect son so that you would have perfect access. That access was inaugurated, says Hebrews 10, through a new and living way, inaugurated by means of the tearing of the veil, which is his flesh. Look, Jesus would die so that you had access and communion with God, and what pleases God, like the perfume of frankincense, is your prayer in communion and time with him. The best gift you can give Jesus Christ is to take advantage of the price he paid so you can commune one-on-one with God. I mean, how would you feel if you gave somebody you cared for a cell phone, paid all of the minutes, and they never called? This is about you recognizing that someone paid an infinite price so that you could connect. Take advantage of the connection. Thirdly and finally, myrrh, the gift of the dead. This speaks to his charity, not his ministry, not his royalty, not his sovereignty. This speaks to his humanity and his humility. Myrrh was used to embalm the bodies of the dead. This is the gift you would give to someone who is to die. This sweet-smelling fragrance, this resin from plants was 
given to someone who would die. It was used for embalming. This is a prophetic symbol of the one that was being worshipped. They bowed down and worshipped and they gave the gift to someone who would die. What does that provoke in you? Turn with me finally to 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and let me plant this final seed. Perfect gifts. The gift of gold, acknowledging his sovereignty. The gift of frankincense, acknowledging his ministry. And now the gift of myrrh, honoring his unbelievable love and charity. This is the gift that recognizes his death. I love this. It is sobering. It is a great thought to leave you with as you go home to celebrate Christmas God's way. Verse 14, 2 Corinthians 5, familiar to you are these words, for the love of Christ, the love which comes from Christ, the love which you have for Christ controls you, controls us. Now watch this. Why does it? Having concluded this, that one died for all, Therefore all died, and as a consequence, verse 15, and he died for all. This child that they are worshiping would become the atoning substitute. He died for all, that they who live should what? No longer live for themselves, but for him who died and rose again on their behalf. What is the gift most deserving to a king? And a priest who would die as your substitute, giving himself for you. It is you giving yourself for him. I'm concluding this. He died for all, therefore all ought to die and to live for him and not for themselves. My parting encouragement to you today, give the gift that Jesus deserves and desires giving your life because he gave his life. Live for him, not for yourself. Take time for him, live for him, worship him, and honor him. There's nothing better than giving the perfect gift. There's nothing worse than giving the wrong gift And there's nothing sadder than recognizing that you didn't take care of the gift that was given. When my daughter was in the second grade, she got to take home a class pet from our Christian school, her class. Class pet was named Sparky. It was a parakeet. (laughs) The parakeet Sparky spent the weekend with us. I was my daughter's bus driver, so... Literally, my car was her bus. We arrived at the church parking lot. I don't know if I was late. I don't know if I was distracted. I really don't know what happened. All I know is when I was taking Sparky out of the back of our car, I apparently didn't adequately support the cage. As I picked up the cage, the bottom fell out. You will not believe how fast a parakeet can fly. It was like a laser shot out through the parking lot, out across the baseball fields at our Christian school. There was this blur of sparky feathers, green, yellow, gone. I remember holding the cage, (laughs) 
My daughter was devastated. <laughs> Honey, I am so sorry. <laughs> I didn't take care. I, I, I wasn't careful enough with what was precious to you. And there's nothing worse than having to confess to a group of second graders, <laughs> Sparky's free. <laughs> I set Sparky free. <laughs> I wish it had gone that well, but it didn't. There was tears and sadness. Never saw Sparky again. Listen, we, uh, we really want you to have a great Christmas. And if the band will come and we'll sing our closing song. And we really want you to celebrate Christmas. Because your heart's in it. You understand it. And you recognize he's worthy of it. I want you to stand. We're going to sing this song of anticipation. Because everybody was looking forward to his coming. He's come. Let's celebrate it. And then I'm going to pray for you before we have our final Father, thank you so much for the gift of your only Son. Thank you for loving us and giving the best for us. Thank you that the King of everything exchanged his privilege so that we might have privilege. Help us to take advantage of what you desire the most, relationship with us. Help us to take time for you and help us to invest our best for you and help us to give our life lived out for you. Lord, for these men and women, for our family here at Masters, I pray that you will help them to finish well this week, that you'll help them to live well as they go home, that you'll help them to share well their faith and their life in Christ, and you'll use them in a way that allows you to be worshipped well, for you are worthy. I commend them to you. Thank you for your grace to us. Help us to celebrate the Christmas that you desire the most. In Jesus' name, amen. Merry Christmas. Have a great week.